Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Our scripture today is Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah his wife, See now I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Then beginning at chapter 13, verse 7. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. We begin today at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, beloved, every word in the Bible counts. It is placed there in the text for the purpose of teaching us about God and his ways. What does the word sojourn mean? It doesn't mean that Abraham gave up faith in God's promise and moved away to Egypt permanently. The word sojourn in Hebrew means residence limited in duration. So Abraham went to Egypt as a temporary visit because the famine was severe and he needed food. The land of Egypt was fertile and produced lush crops. Notice that Abraham didn't return to his home country of Haran or to the city of Ur because God had told him to leave that country. To go back home would have been to disobey God and to lose the fulfillment of God's promise through Abraham. Abraham kept his faith in God and his promise to give him a land, a nation, and a promised seed. But in the face of a great famine, Abraham miscalculated. By way of background to verse 11 to 13, the Egyptians were a notoriously licentious and lustful people. Pharaohs typically claimed the right to take whichever woman they desired into their harem. There is one account in the British Museum called The Tale of Two Brothers, in which the pharaoh of the time, acting on the advice of his counselors, sent two armies to fetch a beautiful woman by force and murder her husband. Now, Abraham knows this about the pharaohs of Egypt. And so he devises a plan to save himself and his wife. Abraham knows that God has promised him a land, a people, and that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
This is an incredibly staggering promise of monumental importance. In order for this to happen, both he and his wife Sarah need to stay alive. So Abraham tells Sarah to say that she is his sister, which is actually true. At this time in the Middle East, a brother could marry his sister with honor. And because in enemy territory, a brother could be killed in order to take his wife, if Abraham became known in Egypt as Sarah's brother, someone wanting Sarah would have to make the proper marriage arrangements, which would give Abraham time to protect her and get away. But the very thing that Abraham feared actually occurred. The officials in Pharaoh's court saw Sarah's great beauty, told Pharaoh about her, and he had her brought into his harem. Now, how could Sarah, at age 65, be so incredibly beautiful that the eyes of all were upon her as she came into Egypt? Because of the long age span during the patriarchal period, almost twice as long as the average lifespan today. Sarah lived to age 127, meaning at middle age, she could still retain her striking beauty of face and form. Being brought to Pharaoh's palace does not mean that the king violated Sarah's purity, for women were prepared for many months before going in to see the king. Remember the story of Esther and Mordecai in the Old Testament book of Esther? When Esther was taken to the king's palace, God enabled her to find favor with Haggai, the man in charge of the harem. He gave her food to eat and seven excellent maids to care for her for 12 months before she became the king's wife. Sarah found herself in a similar situation. And while she was being prepared to marry Pharaoh, God intervened and sent a plague into the king's house to prevent him from taking Sarah as his wife and so preserve God's promise to Abraham. The important theme of the story of Abraham's trip to Egypt is that in the face of two very basic human concerns, hunger and fear, Abraham almost lost the promised vision God had given him. He needed food for himself and his family. He was hungry, and he was fearful for his own safety. Hungers of various kinds and wanting security often causes believers to calculate without God. Oswald Chambers, the wonderful Bible teacher and pastor, says, God seems to have a delightful way of upsetting the things we have calculated on without taking him into account. We get into circumstances which were not chosen by God, and suddenly we find we have been calculating without God. He has not entered in as a living factor. So Abraham remains an example of faith, even though he has a temporary lapse of judgment. God intervenes on behalf of Abraham. He restores Sarah to her destiny and gets Abraham out of Egypt and back into the land of Canaan. The twofold lesson learned is that God always graciously protects his plans and purposes in the lives of those who love him. 
Abraham was God's man. He had a plan for Abraham, and he protected Abraham so that his will could be done through him. The other lesson is that we must avoid the folly of calculating without God, of leaning upon our own understanding and crafting schemes rather than trusting wholeheartedly in the Lord. In chapter 13, verse 2, Abraham returns from Egypt a very wealthy man. Now, why does the scripture mention this? St. Chrysostom, the early church father, comments, The man who had gone into exile in Egypt under the pressure of famine, unable to sustain the privations of Canaan, suddenly became rich, and not just rich, but very rich, not only in cattle, but also in silver and gold. Do you not see the extent of God's providence? Abraham left to find relief from famine and came back not simply enjoying relief from famine, but invested with great wealth and untold reputation, his identity well known to everyone. Now the inhabitants of Canaan gained a more precise idea of the good man's virtue by seeing this sudden transformation that has taken place. The stranger who had gone down into Egypt as a refugee and vagabond now is flush with so much wealth. Then verse 4 of our passage says, He journeyed to the place where his tent had been from the beginning, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. After the interruption of the journey into Egypt, Abraham must begin his life in Canaan all over again. His going down to Egypt was a temporary failure of faith that put both him and his wife in jeopardy. The only right thing to do after a temporary failure is to return to the place of the altar and begin again. If we leave the narrow path of obedience to the Lord, we can get back on course again only through humility and repentance. This is symbolized in the building of an altar. Abraham returns to Canaan, to the place where he previously built an altar to the Lord. There he once again calls on the name of the Lord and professes the true worship of the one and living God. We need to remember that Abraham's altar was public. It was in the very place where the ungodly Canaanites lived. A wise man said, It is the Christian faith that has the capacity to infuse coherence and grace where disintegration abounds. As darkness descends upon the West, it is the Christian faith alone that will save us. Because the Christian faith transforms from within, sin is put aside Virtue is embraced and the ripple effect of changed persons goes out into the larger society. This is why the present emphasis on big government and building back better and global reset and economic redistribution and globalist elites controlling the masses is utterly false and deceptive. All of that narrative is a lie from the devil. The true revolutionaries of the 21st century 
are the fathers and mothers of Christian families who will influence their children for Christ and train them to be godly leaders who will in turn effect change in the larger society. In order to function properly as a father and mother in your home, you must have a family altar. Now, verses 5 to 13 of this wonderful chapter feature the choice of Abraham and Lot. As a consequence of increased wealth and scarce pasture land, a conflict broke out between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. Notice that the conflict reveals the character of the man. Abraham represents the godly man, Lot represents the worldly man. Abraham represents the man of faith. Lot represents the man of self-indulgence. Abraham is unwilling to quarrel with his nephew Lot, a person who leans hard upon God and is filled with God's promises is not eager to insist upon his own rights or stand on his own dignity. Quarreling over pasture land was a very small concern when compared with attaining communion and union and peace with God. Why should Abraham, who has his eye on the city that has no foundations, fight over a couple of acres of pasture land? A man who truly lives by faith will seek a peaceable and quiet life. He will not argue about unimportant things. It is a very sad testimony that so many believers quarrel and fight over non-essentials. Churches have been split in half over such trivial issues as the music, the color of the carpet, and over how much salary to pay the church organist. Christians fight about so many things, property, non-essential doctrines, money, leadership, what name to call their church, what missionaries they should or should not support. It is astonishing how much time and energy we waste fighting one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like worldly men? I say this to your shame. Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers.
listening to Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson, bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true, heralding the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we may experience life in Him. Let's continue our lesson. Matthew 24 contains some very convicting words. It says, In the last days many will be offended, and many will betray one another and will hate one another, and the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now this text is talking about believers here, Believers who get offended, who quarrel, who have conflicts with fellow believers. This is tragic indeed. One pastor writes, How sad that we find examples of offense, betrayal, and hatred among believers today. It is so rampant in our homes and churches that it is considered normal behavior. Church splits are common, Christian couples sue one another for divorce, and so-called Christians protect their rights, making sure they are not offended by other Christians. Abraham was above offense. He was above quarreling and conflict with Lot. Rather, Abraham was characterized by generosity, kindness, and forgiveness. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then Abraham said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. We can imagine Abraham and Lot standing by Bethel, looking out over the Jordan Valley. Bethel is at some elevation, overlooking the rich green pasture land below. Lot lifted up his eyes full of greed and the love of riches and gave no thought to God or to his uncle Abraham. It is as though he thought, grass for my herds is more to me than union and communion with God. It is true that the evil Sodomites lived down there and God told us to be separate from them, but I won't become like them if I live with them. After all, a man's got to look out for his own interests. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let a man who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Lot's choice was selfish and sinful. Abraham was Lot's older uncle. He was his guardian and benefactor. Lot owed him a debt of gratitude and should have deferred at once to Abraham out of respect for him. No, my uncle, you choose what is best for you. 
Lot represents a worldly Christian, someone who disregards the kingdom of God for material possessions. The text in Genesis 13 doesn't say that Lot inquired of the Lord to guide his choice at all. It says he simply looked and chose according to the lust of his eyes. When we seek first the world and its interests, we are neglecting God and telling him we do not love him. How surprised the Sodomites must have been to see a man who professes faith in God desiring to live among them and their evil ways. The Sodomites were a debauched and ungodly people. In Genesis 19, God has to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. Lot has set himself on a dangerous course that will produce very negative fruit. Lot became so ungodly that he offered up his own virgin daughters to be molested rather than have the Sodomites commit immorality with his house guests. This shows us how quickly a good man becomes corrupted and falls away from the faith when he associates with evil company. Abraham is a model of faith and generosity. By faith, he had already renounced the world and its pleasures. He had made the choice to detach from the world. Now he was simply reinforcing that prior choice. By faith, he had chosen to seek the eternal city that is unseen. Now he reinforces that choice by refusing to judge as Lot did by the sight of his eyes and seek worldly advantage. Oswald Chambers writes, God sometimes allows you to get into a place of testing where your own welfare would be the right and proper thing to consider if you were not living a life of faith. But if you are, you will joyfully waive your right and leave God to choose for you. The great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but the good which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. This is the problem with so many modern Christians. They may not overtly sin against God, but they choose the good as the enemy of the best. They settle for the here and now when they should have their eyes on the there and then. Many modern Christians act as though securing their share of earthly possessions, wealth, and investments is more important than seeking God and His eternal kingdom. They act as though somehow they own what has come to them, rather than sharing generously with others that which God has graciously entrusted to them. Abraham could give Lot the choice of all the land because God was his possession and those who have God don't need to cling to earthly things. In verses 14 to 18, God rewards Abraham's obedience. He comes to Abraham in a revelation that is personal, gracious, and comforting. He reiterates to Abraham the promise he made to him in Genesis 12 of a land, a people, and a blessing. Abraham's faith in trusting God and not choosing a temporary good for himself led to God saying, Lift up your eyes 
and look in every direction, for I will give you all this land. St. John Chrysostom comments, For our precise realization that God said this by way of rewarding Abram for what he did for Lot, it is added, God said to Abraham after Lot's parting with him, as if to say the following words to him without demur, You ceded the beautiful region to your nephew on account of your great restraint and thus gave evidence of your eminent humility. You showed such concern for peace as to put up with anything for the sake of preventing any rivalry coming between you. Now, accept from me a generous reward. Because Abraham believed God, he was not greedy, anxious, or covetous, and God rewarded his virtuous actions. In verse 18, the renewal of the covenant becomes another opportunity for altar building. Whenever God reveals himself to us, we must quickly respond in thanks and worship. Listening friend, how are you doing in the area of altar building? Do you have a time and place for daily worship that is nourishing and beneficial for both God and for you? Are you meeting with God each day to receive his guidance and blessing? For of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. You've been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with God Debt Ministries. You may reach us on the web at goddebtministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E ministries.org. This gospel outreach is entirely listener-supported. Please help us proclaim the gospel on the radio to a needy world. You may donate online at our website. Your gift, large or small, is gratefully appreciated. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint.